Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. I'm very excited for today's guest. He is author, professor, and expert on impeachment, Michael Gerhardt. We will get to Michael in just a few moments. But first, let me thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So here's some feedback we've received this week on our conversation with Joe Carducci, also known as Jojo from Jers. Valerie Noble writes, excellent interview. Love her backstory. Hope she comes back for another round. And Steve Norton writes, she's a treasure. All right. So let's get to our one big thing today. Saudi Arabia, and I have great relationships with Saudi Arabia, as I do with Mexico, as I do with everybody. You know, they all buy apartments from me. They pay millions and millions of dollars. Am I supposed to dislike them? I love them. China. I sell apartments for 50 million, 30 million, 25 million, 18 million. Some of the cheap ones, like 10 million. Okay, those are the cheap ones. I don't even bother to sign those contracts. But I get it from Saudi Arabia. I get it from Japan. I get it from everybody. I love these people. Okay, so we now know exactly what Trump was, was referring to when he made those claims about how many friends he has all over the world. Uh, I think that was nine, nine years ago, right? So we learned this week that Trump took upwards of $8 million in payments from various foreign governments. Most of it came from China. Uh, is he saying China or China? China. China. <laughs> China. Maybe it's for China. That's a new word. That's a new country. <laughs> I love for China. Um, and so the one thing about Trump is when he says things like that, you can believe him. He's telegraphing exactly what's happening. This is what he does when he's not projecting. This is why he doesn't play poker. Uh, <laughs> or testify. <laughs> or testify. <laughs> oh my God. And you know, what's really, really upsetting to me is this, this weaponization of government going on right now in the House Oversight Committee with Hunter Biden and the... Joe Biden impeachment inquiry. It's like this is a real crime family headed by a real mob boss who wanted people killed, who has an infrastructure like the mob, who is the most corrupt politician to ever step foot in Washington. And Congress doesn't seem to give a shit about any of this. Jared Kushner, who took how much money from Saudi Arabia? Like, Way more than $8 million uh, that Trump did. But this $8 million is really just the tip of the iceberg. We we saw Ivanka Trump during the same time get 14 trademarks approved in China. But to your point, the whole family is a crime family. They're yeah. all grifting any way they can. Yeah, well, it's more projection. House Democrats, whose investigation got shut off as soon as the Republicans took over in the last election, they shut down the investigation. But so... The $8 million is really only for the first two years of Trump's presidency. We don't know what took place in the remaining two years. And there are also hundreds of situations like this, in addition to China and Saudi Arabia and elsewhere, governments that gave money to the various Trump businesses. Uh, other news about Trump this week, he filed his appeals in the Colorado and Maine 14th Amendment cases. How are you guys feeling about where that's going to end up? I'm going to make a prediction and you're going to disagree. I'm going to predict the Supreme Court will take this case. It's way too important. They're going to side with Trump. They're going to find a way to navigate the 14th Amendment 
by saying that this doesn't quite constitute insurrection, et cetera, et cetera, whatever legal maneuvers they have to do. And I'm going to make another prediction that their decision is going to include a liberal justice on their side. I agree with you. And I remember, I believe I said that in 2023, but I didn't include a liberal justice. Maddie, wow. He's going out. You're going out on a limb. I'm going to make that prediction. I'm going to tell you. Who's it going to be? Do you want to tell us? Yeah, which one? Um, It might be Kagan. But I think the main issue is going to be taking the voters' rights away, disenfranchising voters. They're going to find that that outweighs anything else. Hmm. Okay. I'm not going to disagree or agree with you because I really have no idea. Don't go out on a limb. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know me. I I hate to commit. I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm not opinionated and I don't like to predict things. But- I, I honestly don't know how they're going to go. I think it's a real crapshoot. I'm not even convinced they'll take the case. I will say that. But once they take it, it's such a, a nuanced subject. Of course, that's why you have to be a pundit and just predict and make uh, something up. I know what I'd like them to do. I know what they uh, should we do. We all know what we want them to do. And, and I know what they should do. Because to me, it's very clear. My thing is, those who drafted... Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, clearly intended to keep insurrectionists, period, no matter who they are, out of government. The insurrectionist ban would be illogical if it was intended to protect America from insurrectionists only from lesser powerful people in this country and not the one individual who possesses the most power and who can do the most damage to our democracy. Yeah, I mean, I agree that that makes a lot of sense, but there are progressives, and I would almost include myself among this, who do believe that disenfranchising voters through the 14th Amendment is problematic, even in the case of Trump. And no one dislikes him more than I do, but I do see the argument that I could see liberal justices agreeing with. That's all. There's where I'll differ from you. I, I, I think the uh, 14th Amendment, Section 3, is very clear, and and it's also clear that Trump is and was an insurrectionist. And if we don't uh, uphold the rule of law in accordance with the Constitution, with these kinds of matters, and we sort of tip the scales to politics, then we really don't have a democracy. Well, we've certainly done this before. I, I think a well-regulated militia is a pretty clear statement also in the Second Amendment, but apparently the Supreme Court doesn't agree. No, I'm not arguing that. I, 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 Like I said, I think it's quite possible that Trump-appointed Supreme Court justices are going to see it in a way that is not as clear as I think and a lot of other people think it is. But there are a lot of very reputable, respected constitutional lawyers who have been giving their opinions and explaining why they believe this is cut and dry. And I happen to agree with them. But I don't necessarily think that the conservative justices on the court will. So in in other words, it's like, okay, it's just obsolete. Fuck the Constitution. I mean, people will interpret it different ways as to whether it had to do with the Civil War and not so much about a president. But I mean, I agree with you that it should apply to That's fine, but it doesn't say Civil War. So people can interpret it any way they want, but the language is not in Section 3. You so know, the language that's... that is in Section 3 appears pretty clear if you're an officer of the government. And I don't understand how anyone could logically argue that the president of the United States is not an officer of the government. They could do it different ways. Especially they... when elsewhere in the Constitution, the 
presidency is referred to as an office of the government. So if, this, if it's an office of the government and you're the president, you must be an officer of the government. Yep. But again, it's, it's vague enough, just like the Second Amendment that you cite. And we know what people do with that. So, exactly. So, uh, that's my prediction. No prediction. Another interesting thing that happened, a couple of interesting things that happened this week with Trump. One was this guy, Ken Block, who's founder of Simpatico Software Systems. This is an analytics company that he heads that was hired by Trump to find election fraud. And they did their investigative work and they concluded that there was absolutely no election fraud. Um, he wrote a, a scathing op-ed in USA Today this week uh, where he, again, rehashed how he debunked every one of Trump's election fraud claims. He also said he gave his findings to Mark Meadows, others in the administration. So they were all, including Trump, all aware of what this company found or didn't find, and yet they continued to perpetrate the big lie. So when you talk about intent having to be a necessary element of a, of a, of a prosecution, this guy, he said, I, I met with Jack Smith and the team and my research has been subpoenaed. My findings have been subpoenaed by the Department of Justice, by Fannie Willis in Georgia. So this is all part of the case. And this is what I believe is going to be used to draw the conclusions about Trump's intent. If someone proves to you 18,000 different fucking ways that something didn't happen and you completely ignore it and continue to s spread conspiracies about it, then that's intent. You're intending to be mistruthful, lying, deceptive. Uh, and this guy's got a book coming out, I think, in two months. So that's going to be interesting. I think we're going to see a lot more of him. Um, the ass-kissing of Donald Trump, the field continues. Congressman Tom Emmer of Minnesota, he endorsed Trump this week. This is after Trump had called him a rhino and a globalist who, quote, never respected the power of a Trump endorsement uh, and who, quote, spent more time defending Ilhan Omar than he did me. This is a guy who Trump completely threw under the bus when he was trying to replace Kevin McCarthy as speaker. I mean, literally, he was crapped on by Donald Trump. Thank you, sir. May I have another? <laughs> well, exactly. This is not a surprise. And I, no, I almost guarantee not. you, once... Ron DeSantis is out of the primaries. He will endorse Trump. Yeah, well, they're probably all, yeah. I mean, to Jen's point, it's just, please, sir, may I have some more? This is what they do. It is astounding. It is shocking. It is embarrassing. It's pathetic. They are the, living in absolute terror of this man. They're in the Republican Party, and their base is his base, and he controls the base. It's unbelievable. Really is unbelievable where we are today. All right, let's get to our winners and losers. My winner, the killing of a top Hamas leader in Lebanon. My loser, the killing of a top Hamas leader in Lebanon. Interesting. Yes. It brings us to potentially a broader conflict that mm. scares the fuck out of me. Uh, my winner, as of this morning, in fact, Bidenomics, which closes out the year with continued resiliency. Uh, December employee numbers, 216,000 jobs in December, which shows Bidenomics is working. My loser is actually, it's a terrible loss for diversity, equity, and inclusion through a series of unforced errors and poor choices by academic institutions around the country. They have handed awful people a win uh, when it was an unforced error, and they really, really shouldn't have done this. My winner, Willis Gibson, a 13-year-old from Oklahoma who took just 38 minutes to become the first human ever to achieve the true kill screen 
and beat the classic Nintendo game Tetris. My loser, Nikki Haley, who in her Iowa town hall last night, when talking about race, said she had black friends growing up. Well, good for Nikki. All right, let's get to our weekly rant. It's the three-year anniversary of the January 6th, 2021 deadly insurrection at our nation's capital. And I am more outraged, more disgusted, more disappointed today than I was then. Let's start with one simple fact. There would be no J6 without Donald Trump. He is the visionary, the chief architect, and prime instigator of the most vile, violent attack on America's 248-year-old democracy. Yet three years later, Trump is, shockingly, despite two impeachments, four criminal indictments, and 91 felony counts, more popular, more powerful, and has a much tighter grip on the Republican Party than he did then. And he's the GOP's presumptive nominee, leading his opponents by 20 to 50 points, and he promises dictatorship day one. With his big lies, Trump has succeeded in revising history. A new poll out this week shows that one quarter of Americans in particular, 34% of Republicans and 30% independents, now believe it was the FBI which incited the riot. First, it was Antifa and Democrats posing as Trump supporters and D.C. cops. But let's be clear, it was Trump supporters. Angry, violent, brainwashed Trump supporters. Period. End of fucking story. And they weren't, as Trump calls them, loving. They weren't tourists. They were brutal animals who beat the shit out of cops, who pissed and shit all over the place, who destroyed and stole property. And those imprisoned for it aren't, as Trump calls them, hostages. They're convicts, criminals, and they're exactly where they should be. Trump is a disease, a political cancer, and Republicans on January 6th had an off-ramp, and it appeared they were finally going to take it. Lindsey Graham, Kevin McCarthy, and other prominent Republicans appeared to throw in the towel on their mob boss. But their disgust was incredibly short-lived. Three years later, Graham remains one of Trump's most vomitous apologists and most loyal capos. And McCarthy's political career was destroyed by the corrupt, treasonous sociopath whose ring he kissed two weeks after the riot and whose ass he kissed for the next three years. And now a major Supreme Court legal battle looms over whether Trump can and should be barred from primary ballots based on the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which bans insurrectionists from holding office. We will soon see just how partisan or not the highest court in the land is. Perhaps Trump, like all the henchmen below him who faced arrest, conviction, and imprisonment for their roles in the deadly insurrection, will finally be held accountable this year with his own conviction in Special Counsel Jack Smith's J6 trial. Then, and only then, can we begin to attempt, even remotely, to put this sad, shameful, disgusting moment in history behind us. But on this somber anniversary... I want to take a moment to recognize and thank all the brave law enforcement officers, including Michael Fanone, Eugene Goodman, Aquilino Gunnell, and Harry Dunn, who risked their lives that fateful day to defend and protect our Congress people, the rule of law, and our Constitution. America will never forget your bravery and patriotism. And as a side note, former U.S. Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn just announced today that he is running for Congress in Maryland's 3rd District. All right, let's bring out Michael Gerhardt. He is the Burton Craig Distinguished Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the Scholar-in-Residence at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, and the foremost scholar on impeachment in the United States. 
He is one of only two legal scholars to testify in three different presidential impeachment hearings and served as special counsel to the presiding officer in Donald Trump's second impeachment trial. He is the author of six books, including his latest, The Law of Presidential Impeachment, A Guide for the Engaged Citizen, which is on sale January 9th. Michael, welcome into the back room. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You have a, a book which is coming out next week titled The Law of Presidential Impeachment, A Guide for the Engaged Citizen. That's on sale January 9th. And I want to talk about that in more depth in a second. But I want to start off with a little bit of a macro conversation because this is something I struggle with all the time. It is January 5th, 2024. Are you surprised? Are you shocked by where we are in this country today after all we know after everything Donald Trump has done, that we are on the precipice, potentially, of another Trump administration where his power, his approval, his lock on the Republican Party is greater today than it was on January 6th. Is that shocking to you? Well, of course, that's a, that's a question of politics, um, you know, which I um, uh, can only look at from... Um, I guess where I sit, um, mm -hmm. but uh, I I am rather shocked. I mean, mm -hmm. if you asked me uh, or anyone, let's say ten years ago, would somebody be a viable candidate for the presidency if that person had been indicted for more than ninety fel felonies, mm -hmm. um, found liable in a series of lawsuits, um, including defamation among other things, and I would have said not possible in America. And I, of course, would have been wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, whatever explains the path by which we've gotten here, um, it's it's not a heartening one for uh, these those of us who care about the Constitution. Speaking of the Constitution and speaking of your area of expertise, which is impeachment, there was an off-ramp during the Trump administration. He was impeached twice. Democrats impeached him in the House. Senate chose not to convict. So has the Constitution failed us in terms of impeachment, or has Congress failed to use impeachment the way it was intended? The answer may be somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the Constitution has uh, largely worked as it was designed, but its design wasn't perfect. Uh, and that design includes requiring at least two-thirds of the Senate for a conviction. And of course, uh, Donald Trump was acquitted twice in the Senate. Mm -hmm. I would note in the aftermath of the second trial um, in 2021 that uh, seven members of the Republican Party uh, broke away um, from the party and voted to convict the president. That was the first time in history in which senators from the president's own party voted to convict uh, that person. And um, Trump got uh, a majority of senators voting to convict him at that time, even though he was no longer in office. At the at that moment, more than two-thirds of the senators issued statements harshly critical of Trump. So in that sense, uh, impeachment did stain him. Mm -hmm. I think we can tell how much it bothers him because he's constantly asked for the House Republicans to, con to impeach Joe Biden. Uh, right now, there appears to be no evidence mm -hmm. to support that. As mm -hmm. Trump said, do unto him uh, what got done to me. Well, that's that's a political argument, um, and it doesn't 
justify, I think, impeachment in any instance, but it does underscore the extent to which Trump himself um, is bothered, if not stained, by the fact um, he's been impeached twice. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't seem to have negatively impacted him as a political candidate, which is the, the real irony here. It's like, yes, his ego is bruised, but it has empowered him in ways that I think no one could have ever expected in terms of where we'd be right now with him as the presumptive nominee. I, I think that one of the things we're discovering is that impeachment um, is an exception to politics. Uh, it's supposed to be an exception to politics. It's supposed to operate, uh, sure, uh, within the venue of Congress, which is a political world, but the framers put impeachment in the Constitution as an exception to normal politics. And so in normal or abnormal politics, we may get somebody like Trump who has a very strong following, um, but uh, there, there are mechanisms for dealing with uh, presidential misconduct, and that's, me that mechanism is extremely hard to fulfill. We've never had a president convicted and removed through the impeachment process. Mm -hmm. We've had one president resign rather than face certain impeachment and certain conviction, and that was Richard Nixon. But the presidents who've been acquitted, Bill, Col Bill Clinton and Donald Trump twice, I think, again, um, would rather they hadn't gone through that gauntlet. Mm -hmm. uh, tells us something about what that gauntlet entails. And so contrary to what Trump and his cronies claim, and maybe this is more of a rhetorical question than anything else, but his two impeachments were not witch hunts, correct? Not at all. In fact, um, it's fair to say that uh, Trump himself was um, really the reason for his two impeachments. Mm -hmm. uh, in the first case, back in 2019, I was one of the witnesses who did testify for the House Judiciary Committee. Um, but there was substantial evidence um, gathered by the House Intelligence Committee, almost all of which came from people that Trump had either appointed mm -hmm. or who had supported Trump. Uh, nobody had to make anything up at that time, uh, in 2019. If we fast forward to 2021, everything, or at least a lot of what we know, was on video, not doctored video. And then the January 6th committee compiled more evidence. So there's real concrete evidence uh, of Trump's own conduct. Nobody has to make anything up. If we took the name of the president out in 2019 and the political party of the president out in 2019 and 2021, and just ask, would or should a president who's done that kind of thing be subject to impeachment? I would, I would imagine most scholars and most people would probably answer that question, yes. In your opinion, has impeachment itself been abused to the point where it no longer carries the weight that the framers intended it to have? I'm curious to know what your thought is on Clinton's impeachment. Like if you think that was a witch hunt, we look at Nixon, the threat of impeachment was enough. People can say whatever they want about Richard Nixon, but he had enough integrity, as did his party, to use the threat of impeachment as reason to step aside for the good of the country. I mean, my God, how times have changed, you know, in the Trump era. But does impeachment no longer mean what it was intended to mean? Is it just another political weapon now? Well, I think that is the motivation for the impeachment of Joe Biden is to really gut impeachment 
of any seriousness, to turn it into a joke, just to turn it into a partisan weapon. Uh, for those that care about original meaning, impeachment was never designed mm -hmm. to be a partisan. The framers understood, Alexander Hamilton acknowledged this in the Federalist Papers, impeachments might well begin uh, because of politics. Uh, there, it might well begin because of partisanship. But the longer it goes, the more it requires bipartisan support to be both legitimate and to be effective. Mm -hmm. But I, I'll throw it back at you in terms of what you said earlier. Even just an impeachment in the House without a Senate conviction apparently is enough to really impact people in terms of how they perceive themselves being viewed for the rest of history. So it is a powerful weapon. And there's an imbalance there because the truth is Democrats will never take control of Congress and impeach your guy because you just impeached our guy last time. Like they don't do that. That's not ever going to happen. So the weaponization of government, it only happens one side. So is that what we're dealing with for eternity now? It's like Republicans are going to just without any justification, evidence, et cetera. Just use it as, as Donald Trump says, retribution, revenge, you know, as a weapon. Well, that appears to be the case. Um, there, there's a great constitutional scholar, Mark Tushnet at Harvard, who sort of coined the phrase constitutional hardball. Mm. And I think what we're seeing from the political parties is that I, I think Democrats don't play constitutional hardball nearly as well as Dem as Republicans do. But one of the difficulties is um, that uh, constitutional hardball um, can uh, mask or maybe even expose uh, the partisanship um, of different uh, political leaders. Take Speaker Mike Johnson, um, who has looked the other way insofar as any misconduct by Donald Trump is concerned. Mike Johnson can't find a harsh word for Donald Trump. <laughs> But he's called Joe Biden, without evidence, the most corrupt politician in the history of this country. Uh, so Johnson's long on rhetoric. He's short of proof. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this is a, one of the ways we can uh, uncover whether or not the, uh, the impeachment is being legitimately undertaken. Um, when people have to resort to uh, extreme rhetoric, mm -hmm. um, that tells us something. Um, they don't have the proof, but they like to pound the table. Um, and I think my hope is with this book, it can cut through the disinformation uh, that a lot of people are putting up to obscure um, what's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think what, what is happening right now is an effort, of course, to hurt Joe Biden politically and to even the score uh, insofar as Donald Trump is concerned. Um, but those are not uh, what I would describe as noble motives. Uh, and the Constitution is not designed, uh, at least we hope it's not designed, to reward base political partisan motives. I want to ask you this question, which I think is on the minds of a lot of people, because I don't think most people in this country understand what the heck it means. In fact, if you went out on the street and said to people, what is high crimes and misdemeanors? You're probably, it's going to end up being a comedy show. What is high crimes and misdemeanors? You know, except for my house, I don't think people typically use the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors. 
That, of course, is a, a phrase right out of the Constitution. Um, and those are terms of art. And the framers uh, chose those terms because uh, those terms have been understood in uh, England prior to the founding of the Constitution. And they were understood in the colonies of America. And they were understood by the framers to refer to uh, political crimes. Um, and that's, again, a term of art uh, taken from the British. And political crimes were the misdeeds, misdeeds, misdeeds of public figures. Um, they were abuses of power. They were uh, uh, conduct that hurt the republic. And so uh, high crimes and misdemeanors um, can't be taken uh, superficially. We've got to sort of look uh, to the history and the origins of those terms to understand that they refer to the kinds of misconduct that only people in public office can commit. I'm a private citizen. I can't abuse the pardon power, but the president can abuse the pardon power. Mm -hmm. I'm a private citizen. I can't um, uh, abuse the veto or abuse other presidential powers. Only the people that occupy that office can abuse the powers of that office, and that's what uh, the terms other high crimes and misdemeanors is designed to get at. Mm. I mean, I, I spent decades in marketing and uh, high crimes and misdemeanors is just awful branding. I mean, it is terrible branding because it's hard to get people in the country, the average citizen, to be behind something if they have no idea what the hell it is. We as citizens, average citizens, when we hear misdemeanors, it's, you know, jaywalking, spitting on the sidewalk. I mean, gets, this gets back to the point of how can he be the presumptive nominee? How can he be more powerful? How can he be this? How can he be that? It's because a lot of people in this country don't really understand what the hell he did. It's just not communicated well. Or they don't want to understand or acknowledge what he did. Right. And the right-wing media ecosystem feeds them what, you know, what they should or shouldn't believe. I think one of the motivations for this book was um, maybe an ambitious one, and that was to kind of cut through disinformation. I think one of the things that has been um, a challenge in this country is to accept what we all know, to accept what history tells us, what history establishes about the meaning of the grounds for which presidents may be impeached, treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. That is actually, the meaning of those terms is actually rather well, well settled. They were few, they, they refer to serious abuses of power that can only be committed by people who hold high office. That's settled. Now, what happens in actual impeachments is that the subjects of, subjects of those impeachments have an incentive to obscure that meaning or to distort that meaning. So when Andrew Johnson, the first president to face impeachment um, in Congress, his lawyers and the eminent lawyers argued well, those terms, treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors, only, re only refer to actual crimes. And since Andrew Johnson hadn't committed an actual crime, he should be let go. Mm -hmm. um, and what we've got to also recognize is not to rely on the arguments of um, presidents who are the targets of impeachment, but instead, I think, on uh, history responsible history. And we can look at what William Blackstone said about impeachment. He was one of the legal commentators who influenced the framers' understanding of the terms other high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, 
And a lot of serious scholars have really uh, clarified the meaning of those terms. In 1974, when Richard Nixon faced impeachment, a bipartisan staff of the House Judiciary Committee put together the gold standard on the meaning of those terms mm -hmm. in a report that was issued back then. And that report still is uh, reliable because it's grounded in responsible historiography. And with regard to what's happening with Biden, tell us what the difference is between an impeachment inquiry and the main differences and an impeachment hearing. Well, an impeachment inquiry is supposed to be almost what it sounds like. It's, it's supposed to be um, an investigation into whether or not a particular person has committed impeachable offenses. And, and that should be based on some evidence that we have to further explore this, this subject. Typically, it's based on evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, with Richard Nixon, there were months and months of investigations by the House, the Senate, and the special prosecutor that produced credible evidence. It was only after that that the House authorized an impeachment inquiry. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, the same is true with Bill Clinton. It was only after the star re referral was made public um, that an inquiry began. And so if there's credible evidence, then it makes sense the House should investigate. But as of this moment, for example, with Joe Biden, the House is investigating Hunter Biden uh, as much as they can. And we should ask the question, why is that? When did we first hear about that? Well, we first heard about that in 2019 when Donald Trump tried to get the president of Ukraine um, to issue a false statement, um, a false narrative that somehow um, Ukraine was opening a criminal investigation into Joe Biden for what? Nothing. Donald Trump didn't care about whether there were facts or not. Mm -hmm. He just cared about getting that out there because, take your word, branding, it would brand mm -hmm, sure. Joe Biden. It would hurt that brand. And so I think that what um, I think we as citizens have a responsibility to do is to not be faked out by the rhetoric, mm -hmm. not be faked out by the overheated rhetoric, not, be, not to be faked out by disinformation. Mm -hmm. and, and a good way to do that is to try, is to take out the name of the president, mm -hmm. take out the party, and then look at the facts and ask, well, if the president did that, um, would that rise to the level of an impeachable offense? If the answer is yes, then inquiring and investigating further makes sense. Mm -hmm. So in this particular case, this this truly is a witch hunt. This is a, a solution in search of a problem. Well, oftentimes, if uh, yeah, and we've all learned this with Donald Trump and the Republicans who, who support him, and I don't mean to make a political statement by that. I think it's just factually true. What, if we want to understand what they're up to, they'll accuse the other side of it. Right. Donald Trump is known to project onto others. Mm -hmm. He's thinking what he's doing. So um, when Donald Trump uh, talks about misconduct of others, he's oftentimes trying to distract us mm -hmm. from what he's done himself. Mm-hmm. Instead, I think, uh, and, and it's a good rule of thumb. So before we should believe the words of Donald Trump or even Speaker Mike Johnson, um, we need to ask ourselves, are they even-handed? 
are they making nonpartisan statements? And I think the answer is no. Um, and so we've got to take some responsibility for educating ourselves about what's really going on. Mm-hmm. You you talk about uh, what we can and and perhaps can't learn from past impeachments in terms of the present tense and going forward. Like, wh- what can we learn from previous impeachments? Well, one of the first things we can learn is that the law of presidential impeachment is very well settled. It's well established. It's clear. Um, and it's not. And we should have learned by now that fact. Again, it can be stated in a, a sentence. Um, the Constitution allows for the impeachment and conviction and removal of a president who commits serious abuses of power, breaches of the public trust, and seriously injures the republic. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the black letter law mm-hmm. of presidential impeachment. Um, and so that's one thing we can learn from the founding. And then if we look at how impeachments have un- been undertaken in the past, we only have a handful of attempted or uh, actual presidential impeachments. Um, we can learn that the structure of the Constitution is hard to satisfy. The structure of the Constitution requires that for an impeachment, there needs to be a majority in the House and at least two-thirds of the Senate in order for that particular person who's the subject of the process to be removed from office. So we've learned that sometimes painfully um, from the uh, past impeachments of presidents, Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton, Richard Nixon, and Donald Trump twice. Mm -hmm. Um, And I want to ask you about the Mueller report with regard to Trump, where Everyone was expecting something other than what eventually happened. And he pretty much threw it back to Congress and said, you have the power of impeachment. Go for it. And so was it the Mueller report that failed, in your opinion, or was it Congress which failed to capitalize on what they were being handed by Robert Mueller? Well, of course, um, the House um, ultimately investigated uh, uh, the the material that Mueller's team the Mueller's team gathered, but I should also emphasize the House Intelligence Committee went further. The House Intelligence Committee talked to people whom Donald Trump appointed, who worked for Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and it was those people that put forward evidence that Trump had engaged in misconduct. Mm-hmm. Um, now Trump called it a witch hunt. Um, that was wishful thinking. Um, but if we go behind that rhetoric and look at the actual evidence and their volumes of it, I think uh, we'll find credible proof uh, that Donald Trump uh, did engage in misconduct. Back to Biden for a second. Do you think that has legs, not in terms of evidence and being well-founded, but just in terms of they're going to impeach him? Won't be convicted in the, in the Senate, clearly, but he's going to be impeached. Well, I, I think that's what Republicans um, appear to be hoping to do. Um, and in order to understand uh, the problems with that, all we have to do is listen to the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in September, there were a number of Republicans who said, oh, there's no evidence mm-hmm. that Joe Biden's committed an impeachable offense. The Republicans' own expert at the one hearing that was held on the possibility of initially uh, or uh, uh, investigating Joe Biden for impeachment, 
the Republicans' own experts said there's no evidence here that uh, Biden's yet committed an impeachable offense. So don't listen to me. Listen to the Republicans themselves and their own experts. Yeah, you have people like Comer and Grassley. It's like, is there evidence? Well, we hope to find out. That doesn't sound like that's the way it's supposed to work, right? <laughs> and that, that is not the way it's supposed to work. Um, uh, that's putting the cart before the horse. Mm -hmm. um, the way it's supposed to work uh, is uh, like it did with Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. That's the paradigm. That's I, as close as we ever came to um, sort of creating a model for how the system should work. And how the um, parties should operate. Right. But we've come a long way since then. Um, and I, I think impeachment doesn't, uh, at least at present, impeachment is, is being abused rather than used properly. How do, how do we fix that problem going forward? How does impeachment stay as something that should be reserved for the highest crimes against country and not just a political weapon at the whim of these morons in Congress who, for some reason, are still pledging undying fealty to Donald Trump? I, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I wish I really knew the answer. Um, uh, part of my hope is um, that we just have to reach a point, um, perhaps grow up, um, and outgrow tribalism in order to be able to sort of look at the world as it is rather than as we want it to be. Um, until we reach that point, and that's a cultural thing, um, I think we're going to be stuck in an era of disinformation. How dangerous is that to America if we could no longer really uphold the Constitution as a foundation for which to operate in our society based on the rule of law and not based on emotion and partisanship. I mean, when you think about how the Constitution is being abused, when you think about how there's a president who's promised to be a dictator on day one, who's in the past said, I want to get rid of the Constitution, who does not believe in the rule of law, how close he could be to getting back into office. From a, a constitutional standpoint, how scary is this to you? How close are we to that kind of Armageddon? Well, I think it's dangerous when we um, choose to believe disinformation. Um, the framers themselves um, thought that education, uh, particularly public education, would actually enlighten and enrich people's lives. It would make them better um, and particularly make them better citizens. Um, and I think uh, as, lo as long as we are open to being educable, um, then I think there's hope. Mm -hmm. um, but if we close our minds um, and prefer to engage in fantasy and fiction, uh, that's going to be dangerous in any working democracy. Well, the book is called The Law of Presidential Impeachment, A Guide for the Engaged Citizen. Michael, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for coming on. I hope you'll come back. I appreciate it. Thank you for your terrific questions. All righty. Take care. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. 
please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards and have a great week. Thank you.